My name's David Wise, and you've been listening to Shell Shop. everyone, welcome to Shocked, episode 5. This is a podcast where we talk about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Tonight, we have David Wise. He was the guy who wrote the overwhelming majority of the classic Ninja Turtles cartoon episodes from the 80s and 90s. He's wrote a bunch of other uh, episodes for classic tunes also, like Transformers, uh, Masters of the Universe, uh, Batman the Animated Series, bunch of stuff. So, my name's Josh. Tonight... I have Andrew, Isaac, Jeff, and Colton with me, and we're going to grill David Wise with some fanboy questions. Andrew, if you'd like to begin with a question, that'd be great. Certainly. Uh, hello there, David. Uh, like most folks, I was brought into TMNT by the Fred Wolf cartoon, and like most folks, that was the iteration of TMNT that was like, you know, the gateway drug. That being said, I uprooted at a certain point and kind of discovered the original Mirage source material, the comics. And over the years, that's kind of become pretty much the only thing that speaks to me as an adult. Looking back now on the volume of your work on the show, how do you feel about it now, and how do you feel about how it stands apart from you know, the other mediums, be it the, the movie-verse or the other cartoons that have arisen or you know, the new comics that have arisen? Um, well, I, uh, okay, uh, let's, um, <laughs> first is how do I feel about it? I, I still feel pretty good. Um, does it stand up, you know, in today's cartoon universe? Well, no, it looks like it was done in the 80s, but so does everything else that was done in the 80s. Even Batman, the animated series, looks fairly 80s at this point, uh, even though I guess it was actually early 90s. Well, it looks early 90s. Um, but, uh, you know, it did, it certainly did its job. Uh, it certainly couldn't have been a bigger success. I mean, they're still on the air. There's still, you know, I, the, the cartoons are still on the air. People are still watching the old ones. They're always doing a new series. Nickelodeon, obviously, has the pretty much owns the franchise now. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it, that could not have been more successful. Um, comparing them to the other media that they've appeared in, um, all of that I have only followed sporadically. <clears throat> Since I was not the creator of the Turtles, uh, and did not have any kind of financial or really emotional stake in the other iterations, um, other than in the case of some things like the original first couple of movies to sit there and fume and go, oh, good, they're stealing all my stuff and trying to distance themselves from the cartoon at the same time. Um, stealing is a strong word, using my stuff, because they had a, they had a right to it. Um, uh, uh, I I can only say so much, um, but to compare it, first of all, the original comic, uh, which is obviously what we're working from, uh, as an adapter, I always try to keep things as close as is possible to the original. And in the case of taking that particular comic and turning it into a kid's show, um, uh, uh, that, in my opinion, was neither terribly possible nor desirable 
so what I did was pluck as many details from the comics as I could and put them into uh, my conception of what would work as a TV series. Um, and having, in fact, developed more than one comic series into a TV series, there is only so much material you can use. Um, I did uh, Jim Lee's Wildcats. Uh, uh, I did the Bible pilot for several episodes of that for CBS, and I worked with pretty closely with Jim on that, uh, unlike Turtles, where I never even spoke to... I, I have never spoken to Eastman and Laird. I communicated via email, I think, with uh, Peter um, a few years into the run of the series briefly, but, you know, just to say hi. Um, but Jim Lee once said to me, well, why can't we just use this storyline that I have going, you know, in the comic? And I had to explain, well, as a TV show, we, we actually do a lot more story than a comic book does, and we would just chew through that storyline in an episode and a half. So it's not enough. We actually have to have more material. And in the case of the Turtles comic, I mean, we are. Uh, we were under a fair. Uh, yeah, I won't say close supervision because it wasn't. I was kind of shielded from. But, but basically, Playmates was guiding the series. But there were buffers between me and Playmates. I think I only met with them directly once. Uh, mainly, I dealt with Fred Wolf, and you know they obviously didn't want something that was you know like the comic uh, in terms of tone. Uh, for what they were doing, it obviously did not track with the kind of toys that they were trying to sell, and basically that's what this was, was, uh, you know, a series of half-hour toy advertisements. Uh, and I felt that, you know, obviously for, you know, the audience they were aiming to reach and the audience who watches syndicated cartoons or who watched them at that time, what they were doing in the comic just I, was never going to work for that audience. So, and plus to me, there were these there's this vast, these vast resources of humor just in the concept, just in the name, that if you didn't live up to that, you would be disappointing people, and, and why weren't you mining that? And that, you know, basically, the comic is... I mean, the comic is, wants to be Frank Miller. You know, the comic is... The two biggest trends in comics at that point were X-Men, which are mutants, um, and um, Anthros, this sounds almost pervy, but it was basically things like Usagi Yojimbo and, and the idea of taking the animal characters that we grew up with in cartoons and making them fighting heroes, um, Bucky O'Hare and things like that. And uh, that was the Turtles. Uh, and then there's, you know, they obviously clearly admired uh, Ronin and honestly, uh, Miller's uh, Wolverine arc that uh, they wound up turning into the current Wolverine movie, and that's where the ninja part came from. Uh, and X Men again, teenagers, uh, and they wanted to do a dark, very serious cartoon or comic, and uh, that would never have worked as a cartoon series um, at that time. Uh, it certainly, I had no interest in it. Um, I'm a huge fan of superheroes. I'm a huge fan of good comics. Um, honestly, there were seven issues of TMNT out, the first seven, maybe the first five or six. Somebody who knows the comic can, can 
uh, fill my memory gaps in on this, and I think there were a couple of one-shots, like a Michelangelo one-shot and a Donatello one-shot out. At the time I did the original script, I mean, there was not much there uh, to work from. Um, and honestly, they weren't that good. I mean, I remember the design guys at Fred Wolf Films kind of pulling their hair out, going, we can't make these animate. These guys don't know anatomy. <laughs> and having to completely redesign everything just so they could animate it. So, I mean, there was, you know, these were two guys working out of their house, uh, you know, going around from store without distribution. I don't, maybe they had distribution through Capital Cities or somebody like that. But, you know, I mean, it was a self-published little comic book. And... Um, there was just, from a story standpoint, there wasn't that much there. There was no character. I mean, the, the, the Turtles themselves, they had a little bit of individual character, but it was sparse. Uh, that all needed to be added. And uh, so, honestly, you know, and I'm sure Eastman and Laird disagree. I know they have because I've read their statements online. Compare, comparing the show to the comic, um, at the time, the first episode of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles aired, and it got huge ratings when it aired. Uh, they had sold several thousand comics at that point, and then millions of kids watched that first cartoon. And that's, you know, basically what made it a success. I saw a statement from one of them where they said something like, you know, if I had it been up to me to do the show, there would have been no Bebop, no Rocksteady, no humor, you know, none of the the, the uh, slapstickiness and whatnot, and you know, and my reaction to that was, hey, yeah, and it, okay, and where would you be today if you had done that? Um, so honestly, I, you know, I understand somebody growing up into the comic, uh, but that's a natural turn of events. Uh, as for the films, the first films were okay. Honestly, I've never sat through one all the way through, just because. You know, honestly, it's an uncomfortable experience for me uh, because I'm seeing a lot of my ideas, you know, being reused and reworked and not in ways that I necessarily would. Um, I've seen a few of the later uh, episodes of the later versions of the the show. Uh, the one, not the current Nickelodeon one, but one from about five years back, and I really don't know which iteration of this was, but everybody was touting it as being the newer, darker more true to the comics, Turtles, and I watched a couple episodes, and A, they had the same stupid jokes we had. Uh, the only thing was that the Turtles had wide eyes and were drawn more aggressively, and, you know, the, the level of the animation was very good. Uh, but I kind of looked at it and I went, this is exactly what we were doing, you know, for, for almost 10 years. Uh, the Nickelodeon version, I haven't been able to get past, I'm not a fan of CG, uh, I've watched uh, clips online of the first few episodes. I haven't watched one all the way through. Uh, and can anybody tell me how Booyakasha is working out as a catchphrase? Are kids running around saying that? Because I haven't heard any. Uh, I, think, I think it comes from Buster Rhymes originally, but... Uh, <laughs> no, it comes from Ali T. It comes from Buster oh. Aaron Cohen. Uh, well, actually, you know, I think... I, I, my theory is, I think it's based off of the line Booyah that was used in Teen Titans. I think that's where they kind of got the idea because one of the actors was Beast Boy. The, the current Michelangelo is also known as Beast Boy. 
on Teen Titans. Yeah, I haven't really, I haven't really heard kids running around and saying it, but I don't have that much interaction with kids, so I'm not sure. Well, uh, basically, I just Googled it, and uh, you get a YouTube video of Ali G saying it. I, I know they said in an interview with whoever developed the current series, they said it's from Ali. They got it from Ali G. So, I don't know. I'm a big fan of Ali G. I'm pretty sure he got it from Buster Rhymes, but I could be wrong. He he may very well have. Uh, well, let me hold on. I'm going to actually. <laughs> I don't know. Cash is a type of cereal, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome Maybe. to searching yeah. Google with the uh, turtle documentary people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think I think Kesha actually has um, some sort of. I can't remember what the meaning was, but I know Greg Sipes, the current actor for Michelangelo, the one who. Uh, who you know? Who's in charge of saying that all the time? Um, the uh, like he said there there was like an actual meaning for it, and like he you know he's he's like you know very like vegan and meditation and all that stuff, and it kind of went like along those lines of like some sort of like peace, love, and hippies and stuff like that. What you were saying actually actually segues nicely into my next question, which was uh, to reiterate a bit what you're saying. It's a uh, with the Fred Wolf show. I have to imagine there's a lot of pressure from the powers that be to incorporate this or that for the toys from Playmates or keep things toned down in most regards given the medium and the target audience and whatnot but now had you been had you actually been completely hands-free to do whatever kind of turtle cartoon you wanted to do would you have done anything differently um the one thing that i would have done differently and actually we kind of did start getting this during what i think they refer to as the red sky season um my vision of the show was always that it was a straight out action adventure show with and, and the turtles basically made it funny. And what, and to, to my mind, the first five-parter comes the closest to that of anything that we did. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really mind all the input. You know, the input from Playmates was always just use this character. We've got this character for a call. Use him. Do Usagi or Jimbo. Uh, we've invented uh, this catapult with a toilet on it that, that, throw stuff and, you know, use it in, in the show, which that, that was all, you know, that really doesn't affect the context that much. And the characters were a blessing because you're always looking for guys to put up against the turtles. And it's kind of nice if you at least visually have some sort of, you know, you know, created mutant that you can then work with and, and give, you know, breathe some life into that actually makes my work easier. So Playmates was never a bother. But we always knew that the show was going to have a lighter tone uh, than, well, they're really, you know, I mean, the problem was at the time, all the action-adventure shows, I mean, a serious action-adventure show was Transformers or G.I. Joe. And we knew that the Turtles were not going to have that tone. It just didn't feel right. Uh, in a cartoon, if you have turtles running around, even if they're carrying swords and, and, and bows and thighs and, and whatnot, uh, you know, they're going to look a little silly. So I, the tone has to match that. And especially at the time, the tone had to match it because we were kind of the first ones to do this. So I wouldn't have shifted it tonally that much. I would have made the stories a little more serious and a little more action-adventure. What happened was after the first five I started developing the, the, the next seven, which were wound up being the, the first, basically the first season. Uh, and um, I left the show briefly 
And when I came back, uh, Jack Mendelson, who's a really good guy and a very funny guy and a very creative guy, and, you know, was a friend of mine, had taken over the show, and it had been pulled more toward comedy than I would have pulled it. So for the bulk of the syndicated shows, which was 65 of the 100 and whatever episodes that were done, they tended to be somewhat lighter and funnier. And it was only when I went to CBS and after the first couple of years, the head of the network said, you know, make, because X-Men was starting to kind of kick their asses in the ratings. The head of the network said, make these darker and more action adventure. And I was like, finally, you know, I don't have to do stories about stolen cufflinks anymore. Um, so it sort of, it got to be more of what I wanted, but by then it was kind of too late. Uh, certain patterns had been established. You couldn't just completely change who Bebop and Rocksteady were. You couldn't completely change who Krang was. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it, but, but, you know, I, so if I had a wish, it would have been at the beginning of the show that they more gave me my head with wanting to make it at heart, a straight action adventure show that also had all sorts of wild-ass humor in it. Because ultimately, I thought it got too silly. But you're cranking out show after show after show, and, and they sort of turn into their own thing on you. It happens to most shows. All right. That brings me to my last question here. Uh, right now, we have a IDW comic, a Nickelodeon cartoon, a fifth movie that all seem pretty, at least to me and most people, pretty dominantly inspired by the Fred Wolf cartoon and in a pretty direct way by your own work. So we've got Technodrome, Bebop, Rocksteady, Krangs, uh, April O'Neil as a news reporter again, Mutagen that can mutate, you into the last thing you touched. It's all coming back in a big way and it seems like that's due in no small part to Peter and or Kevin not being around anymore to veto things. Uh, now do you feel gratified to see that kind of stuff returning? And do you feel... Well, it's sort of to me. I mean, the last that I really paid much attention to it was Michael Bay was going to make the film they were going to be aliens. Yeah. Um, um, but if they're going back to that, it's, yes, it's gratifying, but, you know, the truth is, honestly, I knew what I was doing when I, when I did the series development back in 1987. Uh, and what I did worked. It supported, you know, how many episodes were there of the Fred Wolf cartoon? It's like 160 or something like that. Almost 200. Past 200? Good God. Yeah, I guess we'd have to have been. Um, well, you know, there have been... The animation I did on what Eastman and Laird came up with supported a crap ton of episodes and subsequent series and whatnot, even if you change the details of how they mutated and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, it's gratifying to see them come back to it, but it also, it's like, I understand why they're coming back to it, because basically it works. Uh, and it may also be that it's what some of them grew up with. And I'll tell you what was most gratifying. Mm -hmm. Sorry, what? Nostalgia. Yeah, some of it. Um, what was most gratifying to me at the time was when Time Magazine, when the original series was breaking huge, probably around the time, uh, it might have been before the movie, I'm not sure. Um, but when the series was breaking huge, Time did an article about the series. And, oh, no, 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 it was when the movie came out, and, and suddenly grown-ups were paying attention. The series had been a huge hit from the first episode, but nobody paid any attention because it was all off in kids' world. Then a movie comes out that 
not just for kids. I mean, everybody was paying attention. Time ran a big article about it, and it gave the original comic book version of the origin of the turtle, which I assume is what they used in the movie. I actually can't remember at this point. Um, which I had gotten away from because it didn't make sense to me that a rat sitting in a cage watching a human could learn martial arts, honestly. So I came up with this idea that kind of was a door that swung both ways that enabled the turtles to turn humanoid and Splinter to, in essence, turn ratoid so that they fit their profiles, which to me was just in its own goofy way more logical. Anyway, they gave the comic book slash movie version of the origin and they said in their letter section the next week that they got tens of thousands of letters from kids saying no that's not the origin of the turtles it was this mutagen and it mutated splinter and it mutated them and it works this way and and i was and and basically uh, the kids you know the, the, the majority spoke that was the origin and, and that was highly gratifying and do you feel that uh Kevin and Peter both having stepped away from the property, is, a, is that a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? I think it's... An, an, it's I, I can't really make a value judgment on it. Uh, I know that they... That, and I know that one of them, and again, I don't know which one, uh, sort of took the reins very much in one of the more recent series. You guys will know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay, and, and from what I heard from the fan chatter, it was like some people thought, oh, that's better, that's the darker series, and then and others thought, no, it isn't as good as you know, the original one. Um, I think it's always better when you let people who are good at their jobs do their jobs, and any constraint on that, whether it comes from a creator or an executive or uh, an investor, um, can be a problem. It isn't always a problem, but it can more often than not be a problem. So, you know, on the other hand, I wasn't knocked out by the uh, Nickelodeon series. I was sort of surprised that, it, you know, it kind of reminded me, just of, again, kind of the same thing we've been doing all along for those 10 years. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm neither here nor there. I'm honestly not a big fan of the original Thomas. Uh, I I read the original comics. I read the original comics before I had the gig, and I was about to drop them from my reading list because I just was, the stories didn't interest me. The turtles, the characters didn't interest me. And then suddenly I got this call from a producer, Fred Wolf, said, do you want to do this show about teenagers and mutants? And I went, oh, yeah, I was just reading. <laughs> sure, why not? Um, so I just, honestly, I think there are much better comics out there than, than TMNT, but that's just me. And I have not seen the new IDW, so I have no idea what's going on with that. For the new IDW, uh, East was actually, I, I believe, a co-writer on that. Mm-hmm. Well, I have little good. connections here there. Like, uh, Peter Laird did a little bit of work on the uh, 2003 series, and uh, Eastman had a little bit of work on the comic. They're still there involved slightly in their own worlds. There's, like, mm-hmm. a Bebop and Rocksteady uh, special coming up and this and that. It's, it's very heavily inspired by Fred Preston. Well, and to be mm-hmm. fair, you know, again, like like David said earlier, it, the um, Playmates was was in charge of a lot of those characters. I mean, Kevin, or sorry, Peter Laird actually designed Bebop and Rock City to begin with, so it's all it's all ties back to them. Um, can I jump in on a question? Word, but I'll take your word on that. 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, you, I'm kind of removed from that process. I really was out of the loop. On no, that. I mean, and that's it's understandable. Like I was, uh, you know, you'll you everybody will see it once the film comes out eventually. But like, you know, Peter was drawing it in the room in 1986, so it was before before you were even <laughs> before Fred was even involved. So um, that right. was all the toy. The toy. That was when the property had been picked up by Playmates, I assume. Absolutely, yeah. No, it was very, very early days. Those those things were being bounced yeah, and around. I can guarantee you, not. I can guarantee you, they did not have those names because I came up with those no. names. No, no. The, the the names on the piece of paper are literally are punk warthog, and he had a snot gun. So it was very different. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. We didn't, I probably didn't do that. I, I, I wouldn't see really of what strategic value a snot gun would be. Oh, uh, there there are stories to be said there, but that's a whole other podcast. I can be surprised. Yeah, there was <laughs> there was some different there was different characters. Had had they had they gone down that route, you would have been writing a really weird show. Like it was really weird. <laughs> when, when, you know, what we did, what we did at the time was weird enough. I yeah, mean, you know they're so established now. Uh, uh, you know, I don't. If you were a kid then, you might not understand this, but that was about the strangest thing to hit the air, like ever. Uh, as, as I put it at the time, it's like we were just trying to get away with it. We thought if we can just sneak this box, you know, past, uh, we'll be okay. And and. Yeah, my, my my feeling at the time was this is either going to be the biggest thing in the world or it is going to sink to the bottom without a trace. Uh, and who knew it was the biggest thing in the world? And the funny thing is that savvy grown-ups got it too. Um, you know, we got a rave review in, uh, it was either Time or People or something like that, one of the Time magazines. For I the think five, it's, uh, so we were People, I have it here. Yeah, that's, I saw a copy in a box somewhere. Yeah. But, that, that, you know, they got Harlan Ellison, who's an old friend of mine, called me up and said, I just watched it. And I said, you actually watched it? It's a kid's cartoon. He was like, I watched it. I thought it was brilliant. It was one of the best things. I, you know, I'm so proud of you. And I was like, okay, all right, cool. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Harlan Ellison as in, I have no mouth and I must scream, Harlan Ellison? Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that Harlan Ellison. He bought my first short story back when wow. I was 17. That that's a mental image. Okay. Yeah, no, no, he loved it. In fact, guys, you got to understand something. One of the reasons I don't follow this is I have no financial stake in it. What I did was known is known as work for hire. That's where you sign a contract saying you give all rights to anything you create or develop for this show to us, the producers. So I don't make any money off of anything. I got paid on a per script or per. Uh, uh, story editorship basis, and that was it. And I'm not necessarily complaining about it, but it limits my interest in following the thing, and frankly, kind of sometimes ups the pain quotient when I think of some people who made kajillions, you know, when I didn't. Um, but Harlan got me the original toys. He said, they sent you the toys, right? And I said, no. He said, they haven't sent you the toys? He said, no. He said, I'm calling Playmates right now, and a week later, a box full of the original toys arrived. Hmm. Okay. The uh, I'm just going to throw out a question before it gets answered. <laughs> the uh, one of, so, some of the yeah, your, David's is so good at telling everything that you know is on my list. Um, by, a bunch of 
a bunch. Yeah, you're too good. A uh, bunch of these little funny anecdotal stories you threw out when we were doing the uh, the interview back last year. Um, you told the one of my favorites was where you got the idea of, of April's jumpsuit from uh, Miyazaki's film. Can you tell that story? Uh, yeah, um, sure. Um, well, April, as you know, uh, was Baxter Stockman's lab assistant in the comic. And again, remember what I said earlier about how I, I like to, you know, if I'm going to throw a lot of the, ba- the bathwater out with the baby or the baby out with the bathwater, I like to at least pull some details in. So April O'Neil, that's a good name. And I knew that the turtles were going to need, in essence, a Lois Lane because living down in the sewers and not being able to easily go, you know, up and commune among humanity, they needed a contact and obviously the idea of, you know, the classic reporter, news reporter, you know, came to mind because they're where there's stuff happening and where there's danger and where there's a threat. So I said, we need a Lois Lane, like, best friend uh, for the Turtles. Um, and so I said, oh, okay, well, I'll just take this character and I'll just make her a reporter. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, was she black in the comics? No, no, Baxter Stockman was black. She was the assistant. She was white. She was not black. Okay, because I think there was some complaints of, well, you took April O'Neil and made her white. I'm like, I did? You know, A, I didn't draw her, and B, I didn't call out her, you know, ethnicity in the script. So, um, but anyway, so I plucked her, and I wanted to be a reporter, and I went, okay, so how does a contemporary reporter visually hold her own? next to four turtles in masks with Japanese, you know, weapons in their hands. And I thought back to um, what was at the time my favorite animated film of all time, which was The Castle of Cagliostro by Hayao Miyazaki, who is now a very famous name, huge influence at Pixar. Uh, His films get released here. Um, I had seen Castle of Cagliostro when I was in Japan in 1980, and came home with a VHS tape of it, which I wore down to a nub. And in Castle Cagliostro, one of uh, it's the, the, it's it's a feature film based on the series Lupin the Third, which was an anime series and a comic or manga series by Monkey Punch uh, in Japan for many many years, sort of a James Bond <coughs> caper parody. Uh, and um, one of his the people who kind of swirl around him, uh, sort of his. One of his frenemies, she's both his ally and sometimes his, his opponent, is a character named Fujiko Mine, who often takes the disguise of a news reporter. And in, I don't think it's actually in Cagliostro that she does this. I think it's in, Miyazaki also directed the last two episodes of the original run of the TV series. And I think it, this actually comes from one of those episodes. She appears as a reporter with a handheld mini cam on her shoulder and a yellow jumpsuit. And I went, we're going to put a mini cam on April's shoulder because, you know, first of all, it saves us from having to have a camera guy all the time following around. And we're going to put her in that yellow jumpsuit uh, so that she pops next to the turtles and stands out. And uh, what I found is whenever I reference Miyazaki and especially Cagliostro or his work on Lupin, uh, the animators just take the bit in their teeth and run with it because all, you know, and in those days, basically, it was like everybody in animation worshipped Miyazaki and nobody else had heard of him. So they did a really great job of 
uh, uh, designing her, and that sort of became her look. And it was also, you know, she really looks 80s in that jumpsuit. I, I don't know. It's, maybe it's the hair and the, the big shoulders, and the, but she almost looks like she's in a Jane Fonda workout video or something like that. <laughs> I, I don't know if that was as amusing as the last time I told you that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all right. No, it's I. I think it's I think it's awesome because I mean, obviously Miyazaki has a huge impact now. So uh, the uh, and and I think you're right. I, I I did watch that movie recently. I think she does appear in a jumpsuit in that movie as well. But uh, like I you think say, it's, it's I think she appears in a camo jumpsuit. You're right. In yeah. Yeah. It's a camouflage jumpsuit. Yeah, that's right. But in the episode, yeah. Camouflage yeah. jumpsuit with like a visor and a camera on her shoulder. Right. And, yeah. Right. And as I recall, a couple of grenades in her pocket. Yeah. Yeah. The um, <laughs> another one of your your awesome uh, anecdotes too was the uh, the difference in the the origin of of how you were going to write the dialogue for the turtles being a lot more street and and like how you even made it into some of the first lines in the script. Hmm. Well, that was really Michelangelo. Um, we were um, we were kind of stuck for a characterization on Michelangelo. All I knew was that I wanted him to be the teenage in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and at the time, I, I kind of I kind of wrote him street and saying stuff like "yo" and. I, I know somebody says "homeboy." It actually, isn't Michelangelo? I think it's of all people. Isn't it Leonardo, who's a chill-out homeboy? Isn't that the first line of a turtle in the whole no, series? No, it's Donatello. It was Donatello. It's Donatello? Yeah. Even worse. Worse. Yeah. Okay, I, I apologize for that um, in advance. <laughs> and with what I remember at the time, I mean, remember this was early 1987, and Fred Wolf called me up when he got the script and said, homeboy, what is that? Does that mean, like, homosexual? <laughs> and I'm like, Ooh. Come on, no, of course not. It's a thing that people, black people have said that to each other for like decades and decades and decades and decades and decades. Um, um, uh, it's just street talk. Um, and, you know, he like kind of obviously took my word on it because it made it into the script. You notice we kind of, we kind of ditched that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. It, it did help initially, uh, considering that it, it sort of made the turtles sound like they did grow up on television. When it comes to it, which there, yeah. which there was like a joke about that in that same episode. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, <clears throat> well, I, I, I the end of the five-parter. It's gone. By the way, yeah. I just, can I just jump in here and ask you guys a question? Yeah. What's up? Mm-hmm. Am I the only person in the world who sees a similarity between the grand climax of the, the five-part pilot miniseries, uh, Shredder is Splintered, mm-hmm. uh, Shredder is Splintered, yeah. uh, and the climax of the Avengers movie. <laughs> yeah, you got a point there, I think. The, I, I think they... <laughs> the, the, truth is, the truth is, we both got it from the same place, which was Jack Kirby. Oh, I mean, a whole dimensional, a dimensional hole opening up over, you know, a big city that's so fantastic for, you know, Galactus stuff. Right. And all that. I didn't realize it until I saw the Avengers and I was going, gee, I wonder if Josh saw that when he was, you know, 
a, a, a young sprout, not that he's really that much younger than me, but he's, a, you know, a few years younger than me. And, and then I realized, uh, he, even if he, he did or he didn't, but the truth is we both stole it, or not stole it, in his case, he was perfectly, you know, uh, legal in using it, but we both got it from Jack Kirby. It's, total, it's totally Jack Kirby's Silver Age Marvel, that, that climax. I, I love how much influence that Kirby has in like almost all facets of Turtles, from, from the creation of the comics to even the cartoon. <laughs> well, he has a huge influence on all facets of anything that remotely has to do with comics or superheroes or anything like that. I described him to a friend of mine who is a comic book artist who's done a lot of work. He's done Batman and yeah. other series. I said, Kirby is like, I don't know if you guys will get this, but Kirby is like the Led Zeppelin of how he is to comics what Led Zeppelin is to rock, oh, which yeah. is to say that people are still, you know, taking over the bones of the corpse at this point. They're still taking stuff from him, just like they still are taking riffs and drum sounds and everything else from, from Led Zeppelin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, all right. Uh, can, mind if I go next with my questions? Yeah, that's fine. You, you were next anyway. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, my first question is, uh, fans, <coughs> excuse me, fans tend to enjoy taking their own spin on, uh, excuse me, <coughs> fans tend to enjoy taking their own spin on these characters through fan fiction and fan art, most of which tend to, most of which tend to go off on the uh, turtles having relationships with all sorts of various female characters. Some of them original, some others not so much. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Um, wow, there is a great quote on fan fiction. First of all, I'm all in favor of fan fiction, uh, especially as someone who has no financial stake in the property. But even if I did, I'd be in favor of it because it just, it just, you know, it 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 breathes life into you know the original premise. Now, when we originally did this, you understand there was no internets. The, the, the intertubes did not exist then. Um, uh, but honestly, uh, a couple of years earlier, I had uh, female uh, fans of Transformers, which I had done prior to doing the Turtles. And I had wrote, written more episodes of the original Generation 1 Transformers than any other writer on the show. Uh, send me fan fiction pretty much describing what you're describing, which was, Females getting in, rela- in romantic relationships with Optimus Prime or various, you know, Autobots. Um, that there is a term for that. I, I surely you must know the term is shipping. Uh, yeah, and the people who do that are shippers. Um, but I'm gonna. I would love to see if I can find this quote. There is. There's some quote. Somebody said fan fiction is the, I'm paraphrasing here, and I wish I could say it as eloquently as this quote, but fan fiction is the rescuing of characters and stories and properties from the jaws of uh, the corporate mouths and preserving and mutating their lives. Uh, So my feeling about it is, I'm all for it. Uh, I don't necessarily like reading it uh, just because 
I got better things to read, honestly. But um, it's, uh, I think it's absolutely terrific. Um, and it shows that people, you know, uh, there's a lot of stuff they don't write fan fiction about. And if they are writing fan fiction about your guys or your women, you are lucky because that means, you know, that a huge segment of the population cares enough about them to actually involve themselves emotionally with what you did by coming up with their own story. Mm-hmm. All right. So anyway, uh, here's my next question. Um, touching on what we said earlier about Jack Kirby, man, I, I've always noticed a lot of correlations between the Fred Wolf series, the, the cartoon you wrote and the original star Wars trilogy um, was like, there was there a lot of, yeah, like a, yeah, like the Technodrome reminds people of the Death Star, Shredder's armor reminds people of Darth Vader. Was that intentional? Well, Shredder's armor sort of comes from the comic, and no, yeah. that was not intentional at all. I mean, I love Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the first film, you know, I was one of the guys who saw it the first week it came out, sat through it twice, walked out, and went, okay, science fiction as we know it has hereby been ruined, uh, because this little fairy tale is just the greatest thing ever done, and it's not really science fiction, but uh, no, uh, those are just, I mean, Star Wars, I'm sure was on everybody's mind, but there was, I was never thinking Star Wars when I did, uh, and, and again, remember also, you're talking about some visual design stuff. Uh, I'm the writer. I don't actually draw the picture, although I do describe stuff, but Shredder to me was the, the, um, the uh, uh, costume from the comic. And I figured, well, they'll do whatever they want with that. Well, the costume for the comic is based on, we're talking especially about the helmet. The helmet is based on a samurai helmet uh, or a general helmet uh, of a feudal lord or a daimyo in Japan. Well, that's what Darth Vader's helmet is based on as well. They just have a similar origin. That's all. And honestly, in Turtles, it's, it's more honestly come by because there's Japanese culture involved. The dude is Japanese. Um, as for the Technodrome being round like the Death Star, um, I can't honestly remember. I don't know if anybody there has seen the original script. Actually, the Technodrome isn't in the, the first script. But I don't remember really necessarily describing it as being this huge globe. Uh, I recall, and I may be wrong, but I recall describing it as like kind of just a gigantic city on tank treads. So if anything, I was thinking more of the Close Encounters mothership than the Death Star. So, you know, only to the extent that Star Wars, you know, really influenced everybody's thinking on a lot of levels, but there was nothing deliberate. I I was thinking superhero comics. I was thinking Jack Kirby. I was thinking Japanese culture, which obviously, like I said, I'd been to Japan in 1980, and I knew a little bit more about it than, you know, the average schmo in this country at the time. Um, so, no. In the, answer, the short answer to your question is, nah. Okay, and then, uh, for my final question. All right. So, for my final question, uh, where did the idea for the uh, Channel 6 News crew come from? Uh, Bern, Vern, Bern Thompson, Vernon Fenwick, and Irma? Well, Bern, okay, uh, Bern, Vern, and Irma. Why do they all have Vern in their name? That was mm. a coincidence. Um, I did not create Irma. That She was added uh, uh, after, in the period that I was off the show as showrunner. Um 
was based, I know, Fred Wolf explained it to me. He said, we're going to, you know, we've added this character. Uh, and I guess she was, was she added, like, in the syndicated episodes? Well, obviously in the syndicated episodes, but in, there, there was a, a kind of a seven-part arc that ha- that came after the five-part pilot, which I actually outlined and story outlined before I left the show. Did Verna or did Irma, Irma appear in that? Does anybody remember? You know yeah, what I'm she, talking about? It's where they have to put the different pieces of the yeah, like, yeah. Together. She, she was at least one of those episodes. Uh, I think the second okay. one. Well, what I thought. That's what Jack Mendelson cooked her up, and then when I came back, Fred said, "We've got this character, Irma. She's based on my friend Irma, which was an old <laughs> play and a movie, and very typical of Fred." To you know, say come up with something like my friend Irma that you know nobody, you know, in our our target demographic would have remembered. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was telling him, "Look, you got a problem here. These four pers- turtles need differentiating personalities because otherwise, the only way you can tell them apart is by the color of their mask or what weapon they're holding. That's not going to be good enough. Uh, they cancel each other out. They need to be distinct individuals." And he said, "Well, make them like the different Bowery Boys, like Hunt Hall and Leo Gorsi and." Does anybody I'm speaking to get that reference at all? <laughs> no, I don't. Right. Okay. So Fred's thinking is Fred was a generation back for me, and I said, "No, I'm not doing that. We're going to make Michelangelo like like Spicoli from Fast Times at Bridgemont High, and we're going to make this guy like Woody Allen and blah blah." Um, now, also a very dude. We're going to make him like the director of Blue. Whatever that new Woody Allen movie is. Yeah. Actually, um, not a- well, uh, anyway, uh, Vern and Burn, Vern and and Burn, Vernon and Burn. Uh, I think I did come up with, and they needed to be there because April needed to talk to people. She obviously would have a boss. She she and she needed a foil to talk to in the newsroom, so that defaulted to uh, to to uh, Vernon. Uh, and so those characters just arose out of necessity, and of course. Uh, Burn, you know, was a little bit of a Perry White uh, character. Uh, actually, you know, actually, uh, a Burn Thompson eventually became more of a J. Jonah Jameson type because he didn't like the Turtles. Well, yes, but you got to understand, J. Jonah Jameson is kind of like uh, Perry White. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. He's, more, he's, he's more J. Trust me, Stan got... JJJ from from Superman, but uh, yes, we're right. He is. And by the way, again, growing up, I was a Spider-Man and Fantastic Four fan. Not a big Superman or Batman fan. Uh, the comics were not that great when I was a kid. Um, so yes, he's definitely JJJ. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right because mm-hmm. somebody needs to voice, you know, the 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 natural, you know, human reaction of oh, these guys are freaks and mutants and they can't be trusted because they look different and. It said, it said, it said. You're absolutely right. You win. <laughs> I so, always win. win. <laughs> Here's a couple of internets for you, Jeff. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Um, and uh, Colton, you haven't gone yet, have you? No, I have not. All right. Well, it is yeah. your turn. Well, you kind of discussed one of part of my questions about uh, the connection with the comics, but uh, when you did make these changes, uh, what were some of the challenges that you faced, you know, turning this hyper-violent yet kind of badass series into a, uh, a more appropriate-for-kids show with, uh, you know, elements that kids would be appropriate to? And uh, what, if, what, if, what change or creation are you most proud of from the series? Oh, that's an interesting question, and one I think I've never thought of. 
Um, uh, the biggest challenge is, well, I, I may be wrong, but I don't remember. I mean, I, the, 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 the early uh, issues of the TMNT comic did not, as I recall, strike me as being hyper-violent. Uh, they were dark. They had an edge to them. Uh, they were definitely a black and white, you know, comic in that regard. But um, it's that's just a question of tone, you know. Uh, um, I, I knew, for instance, that we would have to turn, in order to get the kind of action we wanted out of the weapons that the turtles use, that we would have to turn the foot um, into uh, robots because then you can slice and dice and chop and wail on them with impunity because they're not human. Um, and I think the first thing we do is, 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 you know, chop some arms off or stuff in the, uh, when they make their first appearance. Um, uh, uh, so to me, that was not necessarily challenging. That's just, you tone it down, uh, which, which, you know, is I sort of have an instinct for doing it's, one of the reasons why I was successful, you know, writing these types of shows. Um, uh, the biggest challenge, honestly, I mean, the toughest thing that the show did was really to, and, and it wasn't hard at all, was to just add humor to it. Um, and I just sort of let the, the turtles be these characters, this sort of combustible mix of, different characters that I come up with in my head and uh, let them sort of be aware of the, uh, the silliness um, of their situation as we're humanoid turtles. We got to live in the sewer and you notice that they never, in, in, you know, for a while there, they don't willingly help uh, uh, humanity at all. Um, 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 you know, Splinter keeps having to tell them, you, you know, uh, you have to do this. It's the right thing to do. And they're always like, these humans are just hunting us. They want to, you know, throw us in a lab or something. We don't want to, you know, why should we help them? Um, and none of it was really that hard. It was just, I was like kind of at the right place in my head and in my career where I was really sick of doing straight action adventure and kind of wanted to make fun of everything I was writing where this opportunity came along in essence to write straight action adventure and make fun of it while I was writing it. And I just loved doing that. So there were no huge challenges there. As for my favorite thing or the thing I'm most proud of, I, I mean, I just the overall, I would say two things. One is simply the overall job uh, that I did, um, you know, in adapting and creating, you know, and mutating the, 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 the original comic, you know, with, with my elements into something that has lasted now for like over 25 years or a quarter of a century. I mean, how many, how many shows, you know, go that long? How many ideas go that long? Uh, uh, um, you know, it, that's, that's unprecedented. It's still on the air. They're still making new episodes of it. Um, so I'm, I am very proud of that. And, you know, the fact that there was a time when every kid was running around uh, uh, yelling cowbunga, uh, even though I didn't think of cowbunga, I, I took it from somewhere else and put it in the turtles. I mean, that, that's, that was like, you know, I, I put it in 
And when we got the voice recording of that episode where the building is flooding and, and Michelangelo surfs on the, the, um, the file cabinet and yells cowabunga, uh, Fred and I went, I think we got a catchphrase here. And then it was in every episode. We made a point of putting it in every episode. And, and, it, and it caught on. You know, you can still say it today and they know what you're talking about. You know, and and I, I think we kind of probably permanently fused the word dude into, you know, even though it didn't come from us, obviously. Um, I have noticed that, you know, there is now an older, you know, group of people out there walking around going, dude, this is too much, you know, dude, you can't. That's, yeah, that's, that's something to be proud of. So I'm very proud of that. So would have rather gotten paid more, but, you know, what can you do? I think we all wish that. By the way, uh, but is 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 the Hand Clan in the new Wolverine movie? I haven't seen it yet. And Len Wein, who created Wolverine, is a very dear friend of mine. In fact, we're having dinner later this week. Um, but is 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 that the arc of the, Miller's arc about the Hand Clan? The the there are ninja in the Wolverine, but they aren't called the Hand. Uh, they're tied a little bit more directly and in, into the villain and give it a different name. And uh, I would say that that Wolverine arc, if you're looking at that, I'd say the first two acts follow it a little they, a, closely, but it kind of drifts off. And then by the third act, it's its own thing. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's where Laird got the foot clan from, do you? Yeah, uh, I, I believe he got the hand from uh, the foot from uh, the hand, which is uh, of uh, yeah. Daredevil. That's exactly it. Mm. I mean, the, the whole origin of the turtles, if you read it, it's basically the origin of Daredevil, but instead of uh, giving the person, the, or the kid, the powers, it, it bounces off and hits a bunch of turtles in the sewer. Mm. It's just the, the canister. Is it, yeah, as, it, as, he, as the canister continues down the street, it's the origin of Daredevil. And then you've got um, Splinter is based off Stick from that same series as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, so I don't feel so bad from for, for lifting cowabunga from peanuts then. <laughs> no. I, I actually knew most of that, but at any rate. Okay. Um next question. Uh I, I feel this is a lot to a writer to know what they enjoyed writing the most. So I want to know what your favorite episode of Team and T to write was and why. Hmm. Favorite episode of Light. Um okay uh you mean the actual experience of the process of writing it or the way it came out? Oh, you could say either. Well, I mean, I'm most proud of the first five-parter. That's the most kind of pure me. That's, uh, if I had been running the show consistently from that point on, I think I would have taken it. I would have made the twist a little bit away from comedy toward more seriousness while never losing the comedy as opposed to the way it did go, it did wind up going. And so I feel really, I mean, that's like pretty much word for word what I wrote uh, as, as are tons of other episodes, but that was just the most me. I mean, I am those four guys. I, I've said this before and I may have said it to, uh, was it, I, is it Isaac? Isaac, are yeah. you in there? You're the one in, yeah. the, the, in the doc, right? Yeah. I'm here. I mean, I basically, I took my personality, you know, who I'd like to be, uh, who I, I'm afraid I really am, uh, you know, and, 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 and broken into four parts 
the fun-loving part, the serious part, the kind of geeky part, um, and the uh, extremely sarcastic part. Uh, and uh, and which is another reason why it's sort of painful for me to watch other iterations of the Turtles, because basically you put those four guys together, and that's, you know, in my ideal of myself, that's sort of who I am. I'm really not that great, but... Um, so it's hard to watch that change or parts of it get mushed down or, 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 or tweaked or whatnot. Um, so all of that is at the forefront in the first five-parter. The most fun to write, for some reason, the one I remember is the... Um, it's one of the kind of the... I think they call it the European vacation episodes or the lost <laughs> episodes. Yeah. It's a plan... Plan, plan 6 from Dimension X. Um, I, I don't know why. I think it was because we were just making a lot of fun of television or whatnot. But I just remember going, oh, my God, this is this is like my dream. Just the title, because I'm a huge fan of pl- the movie Plan 9 from Outer, Outer Space. I've been an Ed Wood fan since the 70s, way before the Tim Burton film. And uh, just to have that kind of fun uh, uh, was sort of a dream. Uh, and the rest of them are just a blur because we were cranking them out so fast and in such fast quantities year after year after year after year. You know, obviously the first five really, really stand out. Hmm. They also had the most time of any episodes (laughs) for the writing, you know, and some good animation too. Uh, In my opinion, uh, episode four, uh, the Hot Riding Team, the, the Neutrino episode, the animation on that is awesome. Um, uh, they got the toy A team for that one, and it it just looks great. My God, those scenes where the eyeball missiles tear through the you know Clementine restaurant, you know, and blow up the pinball machines and what and and, and April, you know, t- t- taking the turtle van over on two wheels, you know, cutting a hard right turn to avoid a missile. That shit is. Bad man, it's great animation. So I just I love the first five part. Fred said to me when they, when they originally aired, you know, we animated one of those in Korea, not in Japan. But you can't guess which one. I was like, yeah, it was the Mouser episode. Duh, it looks terrible. <laughs> he was like, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the those episodes really do stand out. Mistake mistakes and all, but yeah, those episodes really do stand out in terms of animation quality. I remember. Um, Ninja Sword of Nowhere, there was a point in which uh, one of the turtles throws a grappling hook at t- toward the end of the episode. And, uh, and like, it was that really cool, like, Japanese-style, like, speed lines and everything with, like, the grappling hook going in and out of, like, the frame and whatnot. And, uh, right. and th- but, like, the rest of the episode was pretty much, like, for par for, like, season two and three. And I was just kind of like, that's where their animation budget went. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah, that one shot, yeah, probably. Yeah, like, there was just, like, that uh, one shot that was, like, really good, and then the rest of it was standard, and I was like, oh, well. Huh. When you're doing 65 episodes or 45 episodes of a show or whatnot, you are farming your animation out to 100, well, not 100, but a dozen houses all over Asia. Oh, it was definitely understandable. It, was, it, was, it wasn't like I was like, oh, this is bad, and, you know, it was like I wasn't sitting there as, like, a six-year-old going, this is really crappy art. You know, like it was, you know, it's still, it still stands up like to, in terms of like eighties animation, but there was just that one part that stood out for me. They even sent out, uh, they even sent out episodes to Ireland, believe it or not. Mm. Oh, no, no, no. I knew, no, Fred opened an animation studio in Ireland. That was, that was, 
quite deliberate on his part. That's and right. That's right. Hated, CBS hated the animation so much that at one point she clamped, uh, they clamped down on Fred and said, uh, no more, no Ireland, no more Ireland. It's got to be animated in Asia. <laughs> Jeez. That's that's interesting. Yeah, actually, no. Um, well, I, I think Ireland stuff was uh, was was not particularly good. But if you go back and watch Hot Riding Teenagers from Dimension X, and w- especially watch the action scene, they are to this day they are stunningly good. No, they're still great. That's yeah. my favorite episode. Yeah. The uh, I, I do. Speaking of animation styles, while we're like off on this little tangent, um, I noticed. Uh, I've noticed also uh, one of my favorite out of the earlier episodes uh, of the way it looked like as a kid, and I still like it more. I still like it a lot today. Uh, was um, I think it was a April Foolish, I think is what it's called, where she gets confused for a princess and all that stuff. And there were a couple episodes done in this style where the turtles were like extremely, I don't know, uh, they, they were animated in a way that like there was just a bit more movement in how they talked and all that stuff. And I remember as a kid, I really liked that. Uh, I, I don't know if any of you guys know what team no, may have done that. It depends on which studio they landed at, and it depends on what kind of director they got, and how much money was in the till, and how anxious the studio was to impress Fred Wolf. Um, you know, you, you, you never can tell with this stuff. Uh, one of the directors of Sailor Moon uh, was a director on the first five-parter, um, I do, I, I've actually met him and talked to him, and I don't know if he directed uh, the Neutrinos episode or not. But, uh, you know, it depends where you land. I did a show called Cadillacs and Dinosaurs based on another comic. Um, and my favorite episode that I did for them, it came back, it had no time for the overseas animation. Usually you allow like three months or more, four or five months for the overseas animation. This thing had something like six weeks which is impossible, but it looked great. But, and, and afterwards, I, was, I said to the, the production company, why does it look so good? And he said, oh, oh, the director was one of the line directors of, Ki- of Akira. And I was like, holy shit, really? Akira? Damn, no wonder it wow. looked good. So it, all, it just depends on whose pile the script lands, you know, at the overseas house. Oh, that makes sense. Um, let's see. I... Colton, you're the one. Yeah, did, did you yeah I was, it was the middle of my questions. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, go go for it. Go for it. I was actually going to say that was a good transition point when you got the grappling hooks, but uh, I was going to mo- point out that after a while, uh, Michelangelo's weapon got changed from the nunchaku to the grappling hook, and I was wondering, what caused that change to occur, and what do you think of it personally? Um, honestly, the grappling hook was way more useful than the nunchucks, um, because all you can do is clobber a guy with nunchucks, and we were kind of limited in the amount of clobbering we could do. I mean, it's okay to clobber foot soldiers, um, but, you know, you would not want to use those on real people. Um, I had nothing to do with that. The reason they did that was that in some countries overseas, it all had to do with overseas sales and, and syndications. I believe in the U.K., and in other company uh, countries, uh, nunchucks are illegal. So you do not want a character, because you can kill somebody with a pair of nunchucks easily. Yeah, you, can, you can with a sword as well. Yes, I understand that. The sword you can see coming and you can't hide it under the folds of your coat. Don't ask me. Uh, I just know that they, they, are, they are illegal. Uh, but, and, and here's the other thing. You can do a lot of other things with a sword. 
that you can't necessarily do with a nunchuck. I mean, you know, theoretically, yeah, I suppose you could beat a door down with a nunchuck, uh, but A, it's not going to look that great in animation, uh, and B, uh, how often do you have to do that? Whereas a sword, you can cut things, you can, you know, and a samurai sword, we all know, has mystic qualities that can chop right through walls. But, you know, the right sword and the right hands can, can chop through rock. Um, uh, but at any rate, these things were illegal in other com- in other countries, and uh, so they basically banned them from the series. Uh, and I think they may have even digitally removed them in some com- in, the, in the episodes that they were in. It all had to do with overseas stuff. I'm pretty sure. I would follow it because the grappling hook was hugely useful. As you know, a, you know, getting out of scrapes, right. escaping from buildings, and propelling down walls and stuff like that. I, I think this is the same. This is the same countries where they actually can't even say ninja in show at the time, so they had to remove the ninja from the title. Well, yeah, in the UK at the time it was called Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. I don't, I, I don't get that, but other countries, you know, other countries are more uptight, at least when it comes to violence, than we are. God knows we have no inhibitions about that. <laughs> Yeah, but whoa, sex! Don't don't talk about that. Yeah, exactly. That's horrible and awful and should be banned. But uh, you want to cut a guy open with a katana? Knock yourself out, kid. I suppose I, my theory is also that uh, it's a lot easier to make a pair of nunchucks when you're a kid than it is to make a sword. Well, that's possible. Again, I was not in on it, and I don't know the exact thinking about it. But the way Fred Wolf explained it to me was. These things are illegal over since you can't show them, so we had to give them a grappling hook. And I was like, fine, I don't miss the nunchucks. They were, you know, <laughs> I mean, basically, we've all seen Enter the Dragon. We've all, you know, you basically use nunchucks to, you know, clobber a guy. And basically to break break bones and heads. I do remember I do remember making plenty of pairs of nunchucks as a kid, but I never remembered making a grappling hook. Little kid. <laughs> At least for a little kid. Right. I mean, as a kid. Uh, you obviously were locked in the in in you know in a pit with you know giant snakes coming at you that you had to you know throw something that went you know and hook the the lip of the crater and pull yourself out. If I had a Swiss Army knife and some duct tape, sure. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Throw the uh, duct tape. <laughs> the most useful tool of the ninja: the duct tape. The, the uh, most useful period is the duct tape. Indeed. Uh, the, the cartoon was pretty much a runaway hit quite early, but uh, before any of it was released, did you feel confident in success and staying power of your work, or were you concerned about it? Um, I honestly didn't care. Again, I had no stake in it except more work, and I was going to work somewhere whether or not this went or not. Um, uh, I, I know that sounds odd, but, it, 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 but, but I will, t- I just, I, I actually did answer this question. I'm going to answer it again because I like my answer and I am pleased with the sound of my own voice. Um, I felt when we were done with it and I didn't see it till it aired. So I, I heard the voice tape and saw the design, but that was about it. But I thought when we when we were done with it, this is either going to be the biggest thing in the world or it's going to sink like a pebble, you know, to the bottom of the ocean. And when it turned out to be the biggest thing in the world, I was like, damn, why did I sign that work for a higher contract? The hell was I thinking? 
I, that's got to that's make you feel especially bad when, uh, with the Mirage guys. They were trying to avoid that stuff with their own company, which, of course, leads to problems with reprints, but, you know. Well, but, yes, I don't feel, you know, look, those guys got so rich, they needed a lawyer. They bought a law firm at one point early on. I mean, they, I, it's hard for me to feel bad. You know, they, they did okay. And they deserve it. I always say, I didn't, you know, I didn't create Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The real creators were Eastman and Lair. You know, they deserve all the credit for that. All I did was make it popular. An important job. Yeah, I like to think so. But, <laughs> and I, I talked to, again, I don't remember if it was Kevin or Peter. I feel like it was Peter. Who's the one who's like kind of more the writer than the artist? Is that Peter? Mm, I, I, well, it, it's, they, they kind of, they, they, they co-wrote all the stuff that they worked together on. But mm. I would say that Peter is a lot more strict about how things are written, at least when he had like any form of control whatsoever, or when he had control. As where Kevin, even though he's like a head co-writer, he's, he's pretty much just like open to a lot of stuff. So Well, then it must be Kevin, because at the time I said, you know, it was an email exchange, and I said, basically just said, hi, you know, you know who I am. Um, uh, you know, I, I hope uh, you're okay with, you know, all the massive changes we made to your baby. And he was like, no, it's fine, it's cool. Don't worry about it. So it's very cordial. Yeah, that does sound a bit more like Kevin. Like he—he's also the kind of guy that even if it's going to flop, you know, he's all like, uh, even if we think it's going to flop, he's like, no, it's going to be cool. I promise. So. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, it's nice to have that kind of self-confidence. Like I said, I thought it was going to either be cool or just vanish. But uh, you know, it's not everybody can take a property and develop it into a show that lasts for. You know, as long as this one has, and it is very interesting to me, and I'm going to look into more of the newer iterations, because like I said, I mean, all I had was the Nickelodeon cartoon, which had Booyakasha, um, and, uh, the you know, everybody freaking out, I, I justifiably, I think, at the idea of, you know, the turtles becoming aliens instead of, you know, Earthian creatures. Right. Um but if they're if they're tacking more toward my stuff, I you know it's that's gratifying, and I'm not surprised because it works. Two hundred episodes plus that something's working right. You always go with what works. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Actually, yeah, I do have uh, one or two, and you you've answered these for me on Facebook before. Just kind of I'd post something on your wall, but I figured I'd throw it out here on the podcast too. So. Um, a lot of the stuff that uh, Ninja Turtles started my lifelong interest in martial arts. So still practicing today. And uh, so when I go back and I watch like old episodes or I read, uh, you know, any of the old comics or even the new stuff, you know, I always uh, find it really neat when something that's like authentically brought from martial arts or whatever, or at least attempted to be kind of uh, authentically translated into you know, a comic book or a cartoon or anything like that, when that stuff shows up, it always makes me smile a little bit. And uh, I was wondering, uh, when it came to uh, maybe even just like at least the first five episodes where you got to do the most bashing and chopping and all that stuff, what, uh, like, was that like particularly taken from anywhere? Like Eastman and Laird, for example, they just kind of uh, you know, they kind of took all their ideas from like kung fu movies and what might make sense in terms of drawing, like blocking and then hitting back and stuff like that. Did you pull from any particular martial arts source that might have been popular at the time, or 
How did that go when you were writing the episodes? I'm sure that a lot of, well, I mean, obviously, I don't, you know, the nunchucks, you think immediately Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon and the famous scene where he basically drops a room full of guys with, you know, two pairs of nunchucks. Right. Um, but uh, my think, I was uh, very into Japanese culture and I had a lot of books on samurai weapons and their youth and whatnot. Um, so I drew somewhat on that, but, you know, in, in, and I was, you know, very into Japanese movies. And I will tell you, the one instance I can recall where I took something I saw in a film and basically put it in TMNT is in the very first episode when they first face the foot soldiers. And uh, Raphael has that line, where are these guys getting their gear from Mars? Um, if you notice, one of them, uh, I think, flings a throwing star at Leonardo straight at his face, and he just holds up his sword in front of his face, and the star hits it, splits into two pieces, and whizzes past either ear. Right. Do, does anybody remember that bit? I remember that vividly. <laughs> okay. That's from a movie known in this country as Shogun Assassin. Um, hmm. It's the baby card. It's Lone Wolf and Cub. It's the feature oh, okay. film. Yeah. It's Baby Cart at the River Styx, uh, Baby Cart, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, all that kind of stuff. And I didn't even know at the time it came from a manga originally. But there's a scene in that where um, his character is called the Masters of Death, one of them has a, one of those kind of point, pointed in the center and then it goes flat and wide, round ha straw hats. But his has like a razor blade on the end of it. And he throws it right at, uh, God, I can't remember the name of the character in, in Lone Wolf and Cub now, but right at the guy. And he holds his, his katana up and it slices into it and goes whoosh, past either side of his head. That was a direct lift from Shogun Assassin. Shogun Assassin is the movie that um, Uma Thurman and her daughter are watching on the fade out at the very end of Kill Bill Part 2. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. But, yeah, um, so, yeah, and also, uh, and also in, in relation to, like, martial arts and all that stuff, you know, of course, you know, there was the ninja part <laughs> of Ninja Turtles, and the, the 80s was full of, like, popular ninja stuff. And... Um, some uh, some people, you know, they, they argue that, you know, there really wasn't any ninja stuff really in the uh, Fred Wolf Ninja Turtles cartoon. But I've noticed, like, at least in the first five episodes, you know, that some of the stuff, like, for example, um, when the Turtles went in and just made the Technodrome suck itself into Dimension X, you know, started a distraction and then did some sabotage stuff, that was probably, like, the most, like, feudal-era ninja thing I have that? ever seen in in the in any Ninja Turtles anything. I mean, it wasn't literal. It wasn't like they just like set everything on fire. But still, the same sort of attack style result, get in there, get out, that sort of thing. Was that just, you know what, this probably makes sense. Or was that actually like lifted from, you know, like ninja stuff that was popular at the time? Well, um, again, m most of my knowledge of ninjas at the time came from Japanese movies. And even then... There was, ninjas are very seldom the subject 
of those kind of martial arts movies, they're usually the bad guys you're fighting. Right. Um, you know, in, 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 in Lone Wolf and Cub, he's fighting ninjas all the time. And the whole thing with ninjas is they're stealthy. Well, after, you know, that only works for the turtles to the extent that they skulk around in the sewers. I think we kind of just left that as being pretty much the height of their ninjutsu. Well, they did have uh, the disguises. Well, yeah, and the, exact, well, the disguises and the fact that they could, you know, pop in the sewers and then pop out somewhere else. Um, because they have to sneak around uh, because they're, you know, big green things with shells on their back. We kind of left it at that. There's only so much you can do with the art of stealth. Uh, and basically, we just treated them like martial arts do. Uh, you know, at the most, we just, you know, we had them sneaking around a little, but, you know, basically they don't do, they, you know, they never do that stuff of, you know, appearing in a puff of smoke and then you, you, you blink and they're gone and, you know, which, uh, well, ninjas didn't do either. Ninjas basically were like, you know, Navy SEAL teams. They wore camouflage. They operated a lot at night. You know, they probably would have killed for a decent pair of, you know, night vision goggles. Right. Uh, and, you know, they just, you know, in, out, quick strike, and run. Uh, Stealth assassins. Killing. So, you know, and obviously our guys didn't kill anybody. So it's just we, we, we paid lip service to it, but that, that was it. I never really thought, how can we get these guys to do ninja stuff? It was probably enough just to go, how can we, guy, how can we get these guys to do martial arts stuff and win in a world with, you know, ray guns and bullets and <laughs> stuff like that. Right, which, yeah, it doesn't, it, you know, like, it never, like, bothered me or anything. It's like, oh, yeah, they're doing karate stuff. That's so awesome. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, like, some of the things, like, not stuff that you would see so much in, like, Japanese films or whatever, but things, like, if you went and if... Uh, some of the stuff that comes from, like, ninjutsu that's not so popular in like movies and whatnot because it's kind of hard to make entertaining but you know like throwing on disguises and just you know uh burning down the enemy's house while they're inside instead of going in and fighting them that sort of stuff um that that, that they don't do right so <laughs> which, which 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 like i said uh, you know they just had this technodrome suck itself into dimension x instead so it's kind of a toned down version of that same strategy or, or could I say an amped up version of that same strategy? Yeah, true. That's also yeah to send it to <laughs> across the universe. Yeah, that's that exactly. could be. A I, the number part we didn't. You know, I mean, technically they're not really teenagers either. True. So I figure, okay, we don't have to be too true to the name. Right. They are true. true. Yeah. At least, at least we got that, and I've and yeah. I learned that it was like pizza. So you know. <laughs> so, yeah, they were yeah, but, like. Uh, they were like a, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was about to say they were more like college students in that show. Yeah, <laughs> I would actually say so, but that was sort of on purpose. Um, uh, teenagers are only you know so interesting, and then honestly, they become very repetitive and boring. That uh, that does. You know, when, they, when they brought in Zach, remember Zach, who was not oh, yeah. my idea. Trust me, I, I, I did one or two shows with Zach, I think at most. I just hated that character, but I mean, he's like a real, he's like a little kid, and they're like the big brothers who are in college, basically. Yeah, and oh, by sense. the way, 
most people are teenagers when they start college. So they could have been, you know, freshmen, sophomores. But beyond Which, that, no. The idea of them, that, that does remind me of something I want to ask if you've ever seen, uh, just came up. Uh, so, since they did act more like college students and whatnot than, you know, the teenagers, I want to know if on YouTube, if you'd ever seen the parody 20 something Ninja Turtles. No. Okay, you, you need to look it up. It's something that they, they took the toys and kind of did like these little sketches. There's like three or four of them, and it's basically twenty uh-huh. uh, something Ninja Turtles, turtles having problems in their twenties, <laughs> and uh, and like they're they, they're treated a lot more like college roommates, you know, uh, fighting over like you know like uh, pizza and you know talking about how like they need to go to the gym more, and it's just done really funny. If you just type twenty something Ninja Turtles into YouTube, you'll find like three or four of them. Can I go on record as saying I still haven't seen Turtles Forever? Hmm. Uh, don't oh. worry about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd actually thought about asking about that. I did. I have not seen it. I've, I've sort of deliberately... I, I, I just figured it, you know, it's like I'm either going to love it, in which case I'm going to be angry and jealous about it, or I'm going to be... Uh, or I'm going to hate it. In which case, I'm just going to be angry about it. So I figure, okay, there's no, there's no good end to this. Why should I even watch it? Yeah. If there is one part you probably would enjoy, it's the fact of uh, the original comic turtles when they show up and late, late, late into the movie and just how over, over dark, over growly they are, even compared to the actual source material. It's like it's funny in and of itself. You know, when you, you said you didn't really like the comic that much and you were about to drop it and it was really uninteresting. And it's just like that amount of uninterestingness actually kind of becomes its own joke. Well, I actually might enjoy that. And, and I say that, you know, as a huge fan of, you know, Frank Miller's work in the 70s and 80s um, and, and of a lot of comics. Like I said, I mean, I went to my comic store and bought, you know, many issues of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles before uh, actually getting the assignment or, you know, getting the call. Um, let me throw out a couple of other things uh, uh, to, to, to that I want, I, actually, I want to touch on. Now, you, you, you guys know the story about how I got the gig in the first place and what that has to do with the title song, right? I know Isaac does. Yeah, and you've said it in other interviews, like on the uh, the Lionsgate stuff. Okay, we don't need to go over that one. Um, and uh, yeah, there was something else. That we, we, you we you may you. We, I was gonna I was gonna say is a is the Patty Howarth story you want to get out there again or? Oh, okay, all right, all right. Let's very quickly. Uh, you look Patty up on the IMDb, and you see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and a couple of acting gigs and voice gigs. Um, Patty isn't a writer. Uh, she's many things, but she's not a writer. She was my girlfriend at the time, and we actually later got married and have even later gotten divorced. Um, but at the time uh, I got, I was hired for to do the five-parter, I was very burned out. I had just done a crap ton of Transformers and My Little Ponies and Defenders of the Earth and some series you never even heard of. Uh, and I was like, wow, this is no fun anymore. And I turned to Patty and I said, how'd you like to write this together? 
And she went, well, I'm not really a writer. And I said, I know, I know, I know. But, you know, we, it was like, it was really, to me, it was kind of like misery loves company. And I had, you know, this girlfriend and, and, and I would be locked in a room for like 14 hours a day working on this freaking thing for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, so, you know, let's do it together. And the way I wrote the five parter was unusual, uh, in that because I wanted it to be kind of an interconnected story arc with five individual events occurring so that each episode both had a satisfying resolution and yet there was a feeling of, okay, now what happens next? This isn't resolved yet. Um, and uh, so the way I wrote it was to come up with a basic idea for the five stories and then write the story outlines, which is the next phase in script writing usually is you write a story outline. I wrote the story outline for all five parts. And then once we got approval on that, I wrote the scripts for all five parts, which is not usually how you do it. Well, by the time, and I told Fred I'm going to write this with my girlfriend, Patty Howard. He said, that's fine. And I said, you know, just to make sure you don't misspell her name because it gets misspelled a lot. Uh, and by the time we were done with the story outline, it was pretty obvious. I mean, she had contributed exactly nothing, really. I mean, I used her as a sounding board. I would talk stuff out with her, but she didn't actually contribute anything. And we both sort of went, well, this is not going to work. And um, so I went on to do the script on my own. But by that time, because I had done, I, you know, it takes a lot of time to do five story outlines in a row. Basically I had a situation where I had to get into script a week for five weeks straight, which is tough with rewrites, you know? So I'm cranking out the five scripts. Uh, and I'm so behind that I don't turn any of them in with actual cover pages on them because they don't need them because there's no other writers on the series except me. So, and I didn't even think about it, but then because I made sure that they had the correct spelling of her name, I mean, the, it airs like eight months later in January of, or December of uh, 87 or January of 88, and there's Patty's name on it. I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. So, you know, as I've always said, anybody can ask her, and I think some people have, you know, it's her name is there, but she didn't really contribute anything. And clearly she is not a writer because it's her only writing credit. So that's the answer to that story. So stop asking me about Patty Howell. She didn't die or anything. She just, her name wound up on it by mistake. She's very happy and living in Texas. <laughs> uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, there was this one thing though. Uh, yeah, how, with all the with all the per turtles of the different personalities, I think you'll like the Mirage one because uh, Raphael's always the uh, most prone to fight and angry to the group. So, for the Mirage turtles and the for t t turtles forever, he just growls the entire movie. Doesn't speak once. <laughs> well, it does say a really? couple things. Kind of he has a, a couple of little lines. Yeah, okay, he primarily growls. Well, you mean the Mirage turtles in Turtle Forever? Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, Although, uh, oh boy. They they you kind of went they kind of went through a bunch of dimensions and they ended up in the source universe because Shredder was trying to kill all right. turtles forever. Mm -hmm. he's, got, he's got a problem. 
Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, I, I, all I remember was that they were very grim in the comic. And yeah. then kind of later in the, near the end of the run of like maybe year eight of the, <laughs> the original series, Eastman and Laird, Fred called me up once and said, Eastman and Laird want to submit story ideas. And I said, fine, we'll take story ideas, you know, from wherever we can get them. And so they, they sent me a stack of story ideas to read, none of which were usable. Um, but I remember one being so fricking violent. I was like, what do these guys think this show is? You know, this is, you know, our key demographic is eight. You know, you do not have blood spattered walls in, 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 in entertainment for people that young. But at any rate, kids grow up so fast these days. What? Kids grow up fast. Now maybe you get away with it. I don't think so, though. I don't think so. I don't know. You I mean, guys are... Um, I watched you, Nightmare on Elm Street when I was six, so... The turtles guys, are still you, slicing you, at robots even today. Well, you guys all live yeah, in America, saw, so you can get away with it. <laughs> I, I saw Oshana the Lou by Louis Bunuel and Salvador Dali when I was nine, and that opens with a woman getting her eyeball razored open. <clears throat> Woo! So, and, Damn! Yes. <clears throat> they do it with... Well, they do it with a with a goat's eye. It's like a close <laughs> shot on an actual eye of an actual goat being cut open by a straight edge razor. I saw that when I was nine. Uh, it's not a good idea to get a close. Look, look how I turned out. Look, let's, be, let, let's be honest here. No matter what's supposed to be appropriate for kids, kids will always find the most inappropriate stuff for them to watch. <laughs> and I was, I was not seeking that out. But the point is, you know, you've got to get past this phalanx of grown-ups to actually get it. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to. Sh- I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, the bloodstained walls was the least of the problems with that particular premise, as, as I recall. I, uh, I used to have a saying in, in writing kids' cartoons that you know you've run out of ideas when you do the circus is coming to town episode. And by God, if they didn't submit an episode about this haunted demon circus that comes from nowhere and shows up and leaves the entire town dead with limbs hanging from trees and blood spattering the walls. And I'm like, okay, A, it's the frickin' circus is coming to town show, which is, you know, a complete no-no in my book. You know, there aren't even circuses anymore, people. Come on, you know, there's one circus and it doesn't come to most towns, you know, and two limbs hanging from trees and blood spattering the wall. I like, get with the program, you know, make a comic book out of it. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to sound grumpy, so I should probably, we should wrap this up. Are there, is there a final question I can take and then give my throat a rest? Um, if, if you have anything, Isaac, you might know a good one to throw out there. But other than that, I think we're done. To be honest, I think let's let uh, let's let the poor guy go. He's done a, a good service. Mercy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I would, definitely. I, if you could see me now, if I was on the Skype connection with you guys and had my webcam on, I look exactly like Grumpy Cat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a that's that's a nice image. Yeah. So, I, well, yeah. Only, only I look like this, I look like the most awesome Grumpy Cat you ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We all agree. Thanks, thanks a lot. Uh, I hope uh, I, oh, hope I uh, answer all your questions. And thank you for being fans of the show. 
and uh, we will talk down the line. And anybody out there who hasn't friended me on Facebook, what the heck is your problem? I'm on Facebook. Friend me. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Shellshock TMNT podcast. Hopefully, uh, we'll catch you for our next episode. Anyway, um, I get nothing under Booyakasha Busta Rhymes. So, uh, and, and again, like I said, I heard it came from Ali G. Maybe you got it from somewhere. Look, everybody thinks I got Cowabunga from Howdy Doody, and I was always, well, Howdy Doody went off the air when I was five, and I actually wasn't allowed to watch it. I got it from Peanuts. Uh, uh, in fact, I think they recently, because they run old Peanuts in the newspaper, they recently ran the strip in which Snoopy says Cowabunga, which is where I got it from. I picked a bad time to have a snack, though. I was in cheese while I was talking about some lady getting her eyes gouged. I was like, I'm going to puke here. <laughs> I guess we could say this was radical, excellent, tubular, most excellent, radical, awesome. Yeah, it was, it was It was amazing. I was like sitting there talking to Andrew before we rolled, and all of a sudden it was like this guy walking. Can you spank that kid? I'm like, what is going? What is going on? This conversation is going in a bad direction. <laughs> I was like, no, you can't spank them. That would be illegal. Stop it. <laughs> Not like the old days, the child beating days. Yeah, it hurt my it hurt my sensitive Canadian ears. Well, if it was Obama himself, hi. Uh, <laughs> Dude, but, what's up? Like, that's, that's, that's you really, want to be on the podcast? We can talk about Teenage Mutant Turtles. That's some job dedication right there. If the president himself is doing the lesson. Oh, hey! You know, he, he just, he's just sitting there with a bag of popcorn hey, just laughing um, with a pair of headphones on. Nerds! <laughs> crunch, crunch. No, no, the Canadian president is listening to it. Yeah.